wonder this time where she's gone wonder if she's gone to stay ain't no sunshine when she's gone and this house just ain't no home anytime she goes away and you're listening to Bill Withers singing Ain't No Sunshine from his 1971 debut album, Just As I Am. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now, from one of our favorite recurring segments, the story of a song, and this one, Grandma's Hands by Bill Withers. It was on the same record, didn't achieve quite the status that the other hits he made did, songs like Lean On Me, and songs like Just the Two of Us. These were chart toppers. But Grandma's Hands wasn't just Bill Withers' favorite song. It's my favorite Bill Withers song, too. And before we dig into the song and how it came to be, Bill Withers was born in 1938 in a tiny town, population 200 right now, in West Virginia, called Slab Fork. It's in the south-central part of the state, a coal mining town. Let's hear Bill Withers talk about life there. My family lived right beside this railroad track. And so all the white people lived on one side of the railroad track, and all the black people lived on the other side of the railroad track. Well, my mother bought a house that was just on the side that she wasn't supposed to buy it on. But it was, you know, just two houses, two families, you know, that were allowed over there. But when I was growing up, wherever I heard noise, that's where I went to play. And everybody called me little brother. In fact, my mother was looking for me on the side where all the white people lived once, and she was calling me by my name, and nobody said, no, we haven't seen him. Then she thought, well, maybe they, they called him. So they said, have you seen little brother? And said, oh, yeah, he's right over there. So um, there was always a certain interaction here. I think more so than most southern states. Indeed, he would go on to talk about the fact that black and whites went into those mines together and it was dangerous work. So just as soldiers bonded and race meant less in conflict, the same in the mines. And now let's hear an introduction by Bill Withers describing this song to whom it was dedicated, his grandma. Most of us at some point in our lives have somebody that means more to us than anybody else has ever meant before or will ever mean again. Sometimes it's a long-legged lady if you're a man or some tall, very smooth man if you're a woman. But in my case, I learned how to really love somebody from not a very pretty lady, not at that point in her life, not uh, sexy at all, but just a nice old lady who used some very nice old gnarled hands to make life kind of nice for me at that time when I really needed somebody. And it wasn't after I got older and started to look around for things. It was before I even knew what I was looking for. And probably since I consider myself somebody who writes primarily, out of all the... Uh, things that I might have written. My favorite thing that I've written has, has to be about this favorite old lady of mine. 
So here's Bill Withers singing his favorite song and mine. Grandma's hands clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played a tambourine so well. Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning. She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast. Might fall on a piece of glass. Might be snakes there in that grass. Grandma's hands. Unwed mother, grandma's hand used to ache sometimes and swell. Grandma's hand used to lift her face and tell her she'd say, Baby, grandma, understand that you really love that man. Put yourself in Jesus' hands, grandma's hand. Grandma's hand. Hand me piece of candy, Grandma's hand. Pick me up each time I fell, Grandma's hand. Boy, they really came in a handy. She'd say, Matty, don't you whip that boy. What you wanna spank him for? He didn't drop no apple core, but I don't have Grandma anymore. If I get to heaven, I'll look for Grandma. And what a song, and what direct, simple lyrics. And my goodness, you're hearing the white and the black influences there in that music. You're hearing a bit of country, straight as an arrow, and yet that soul infusion and that backbeat and that voice. And only in America can music like this get created, folks, where different people from different places get together, and it all merges into a beautiful sound. Bill Withers, his story, the story of a song grandma's hands and by the way your favorite song we'll look into it we'll try and find out the story behind the song send your suggestions to ouramericannetwork.org grandma's hands and bill withers he was inducted into the hall of fame in 2015 and stevie wonder performed ain't no sunshine with withers on the stage you could tell it was the highlight of his life an award well earned bill withers the story of Grandma's Hands, the story of a song, here on Our American Stories. Sometimes in our lives We all have pain We all have sorrow But if we are wise We know that If I have 
we continue here on Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about sports here on the show. And today we have the story of the swimmer Gertrude Ederle. She was born to German immigrant parents in New York on October 23, 1905. She was the first woman in history to swim the English Channel, and that's a swim of 21 miles. Today we have Laurieann Turgeson, the Director of Education at the National Women's History Museum, telling her story. She was known as the Queen of the Waves, so if that gives you any indication of um, how celebrated she was. She loved swimming, and and this was actually an acceptable sport for women at a time when um, it wasn't encouraged for women to be athletic. So if you think about her, her parents, they're products of the Victorian era. So the Victorians uh, were very prim and proper, and they, they were the ones who wore the buttons all the way up to the neck, and you know, women didn't cut their hair, and the ideal feminine beauty was small and petite and with the cinched waist and the corsets, and, and um, she was really a hero against all odds. She came from an era herself, her generation was more of the, the flapper era, and the flappers rebelled against everything Victorian, so they, they cut their hair short, and they wore the short dresses, and, and they did away with corsets and anything cinched, and they really had this love affair with the, the athletic outdoors woman, and they loved the idea of women being strong and athletic. So this is, again, just a, a rebelling against the, that previous generation that told women that they couldn't be athletic because it sexed them or that they they shouldn't participate in sports because, you know, especially during those childbearing years, it was considered foolhardy. So very, very much a different era um, that her parents came from. And there were still these lingering attitudes, even as sports like tennis and swimming became more socially acceptable for women to participate in because of sort of the country club um, climate. You go to a country club, there were women participating in tennis and swimming, and, and it was considered very fashionable for women to participate in those sports. She took to swimming um, right away. She was an avid swimmer, and she did turn professional in 1925. And she was swimming at the Women's Swimming Association in New York when she turned professional. And this was sort of the hub of competitive swimming in the United States at the time. Um, In 1925, uh, the association decided that they were going to sponsor two women swimmers to attempt to swim the English Channel. And unfortunately, her her teammate had to drop out the last minute due to an injury. So uh, Trudy went ahead to France and began training on her on her own. Her coach's name was Jabez Wolf, and, and it was always thought that maybe he did not want her to succeed. He himself, it should be noted, had attempted to swim the English Channel 22 times before he actually began training um, Trudy. She started training with him and made her first attempt uh, to swim the English Channel in 1925, and she was unsuccessful. And a lot of things went down during that swim that kind of uh, weren't so weren't so kosher. Her um, her coach kept trying to, to slow her down. Now she was a naturally fast swimmer, but he, throughout her training and throughout the swim itself, he was trying to slow her down, saying she couldn't sustain that pace, that no woman could sustain that pace on, on such a long swim. And at one point she needed to kind of 
slow down and take a rest. So she allowed herself to just float there for a minute, face down in the water, and she was catching her breath and, and just relaxing her muscles for, for a minute. Her coach panicked and, and sent a, another swimmer into the water to have her drug out. And she said, she started saying, no, no, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not drowning, I, I'm just resting. And her coach ordered her out of the water anyway. And this was a very uh, bitter conflict between she and her coach. And she ended up not training with him again. And, but she did go back to France in, in 1926 to start training, this time with a new coach, Bill Burgess, who was, who was very supportive and had no doubt that a woman can, could make this swim, let alone Gertie. And so she attempted the, the channel again. She was successful. She swam the 35 miles in 14 hours, 31 minutes. This actually beat out the previously held record by a man um, by a solid one hour, 59 minutes. And nearly two hours, she shaved off the previous record. Um, this swim didn't come at, at a, you know, it wasn't easy. She actually lost part of her hearing during that swim. Her hearing wasn't that great. She has suffered from measles as a child and, and her, hearing had been impacted by that and had started to decline, but being in the cold water that long actually impacted her hearing further. There was also drama around this swim in that uh, she had secured a couple of uh, sponsorships from newspapers, American newspapers, one being the New York Daily News and the other being the Chicago Tribune. And she was promised a bonus if they got the exclusive rights to her, her swim and got to interview her first um, when she was successful. These reporters hired a tugboat and um, her father and one of her sisters was on the board the tugboat and was following her on her swim and then reporters from the New York Daily News and the Chicago Tribune were on board the boat and to protect their exclusivity to her story they didn't allow any other reporters on the boat and there were uh, European reporters who were very much angered by this and they were bitter so they hired their own tugboat and were also following her on the swim and they intentionally kept getting closer and closer to her um, quite perilously during the swim and she was very angered by that so it wasn't without its own drama and then English papers were saying that because the tugboats were, were actually uh, so close to her during the swim it may have made her swim that much easier because they were blocking the wind. No, that was actually true. So she became a, a celebrated celebrated hero after after that. Um, again, against the odds, there were so many people saying a woman couldn't do this, and she has so many people trying to um, make sure she didn't succeed. But but she did, and she overcame those um, sort of those gender norms that previously held women back long before Title IX was ever passed. Um, she went on to break another record in 1925, actually even before she swam the channel. That was her swim from Battery Park to Sandy Hook. That was a 22-mile um, swim that she um, she managed in record time, 7 hours, 11 minutes. And it, that actually, uh, that record stood for 81 years before another swimmer a woman actually beat her record. She, um, from 1921 to 1925, she held 29 national and world amateur swimming records. And uh, she was a leading exponent of the eight beat crawl, which was a crawl she used to, um, with a stroke, I should say, that she used to, to cross the, the English Channel. And this is, this is a stroke that involves eight kicks for each full arm stroke. She was one of the, the best-known American sport um, personages of the, of the 20s and um, was 
greatly celebrated after her swim across the channel. She came back to a, a ticker ticker tape parade. There are lots of photos you can find online of, uh, with the vast crowds and, and everyone knew her name. She was a celebrated hero and um, had really helped to dispel that idea that women can't do X. So, like I said, she was sort of this un unlikely hero, but at the same time, when she did break that record, it was amazing and she was properly celebrated and feted upon her return. Unfortunately, in 1933, she, um, she suffered a serious back injury. She <laughs> fell down a, a flight of stairs, twisted her spine, never fully recovered from that. She recovered enough that uh, six years later, she was able to appear in, in the New York World's Fair, but um, it, it still plagued her for the rest of her life. And in the meantime, her hearing was continuing to decline. She continued to be uh, feted and celebrated for the rest of her life because of, uh, of all the numerous records that she broke and because she was an Olympic hero and she was the first woman to, to swim the English Channel. So she was inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame in 65. And in 1980, she was inducted to the Women's Sports Hall of Fame. The hearing and the back injury, like I said, it continued to plague her all her life and she lived a long, healthy life. She was 97 when she passed away. These were things that continued to plague her to the, to the point that in the 40s, she was nearly entirely deaf. But again, this is not something that slowed her down. She turned around and she became a swimming instructor for, for deaf children. So um, again, just a hero in, in so many different ways. And great job on that, Faith. And you've been listening to Lori Ann Turgeson, and she's the Director of Education at the National Women's History Museum, telling the story of Gertrude Ederly. And what a story it is and was. Battery Park to Sandy Hook. For anybody familiar with New York, the Battery Park is at the very base of Lower Manhattan, and out from Battery Park you can see the Statue of Liberty. And dimly, if you're sitting up at the new World Trade Center, you can see Sandy Hook. And that's in New Jersey, the northernmost beach in New Jersey. And that is one heck of a haul and some rough waters. A great story, a truly remarkable one. Gertrude Ederly's story here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories, where we love to bring you great stories about, well, everything. We also like to bring you great speeches, and also wise men and women in this country that aren't famous, but should have been. I mean, when you think about fame, it's actors, it's people running to the flame, people desperately searching for the Klieg lights. And by the way, they're interesting, but we know so many more interesting people in our own communities wise people, brilliant people, good people doing incredible things. And so if you have stories like that or a speech or anything about people like that in your own community, send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Giving voice to not the voiceless, but people who just 
They're just going about their day trying to make life better. They're not looking for fame. And that brings us to today's speech by the late Rich DeVos, the co-founder of the direct selling company Amway, which has empowered more than 3 million people to own their own business. And by the way, a lot of those people, women, owning their very own first business and tapping their own entrepreneurial talents. And again, across the globe, Amway's reach has been. Here's Rich at Calvin College, beginning his speech after a very flowery introduction. All those things may be true, but really I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's who I really am, you know? And so uh, all the rest of it is, uh, by the grace of God, it all happened, surprises me as probably as much as it surprises you that we have come this far and all these things have happened. I see my son Douglas over here, so and his wife Maria and family, wow. We won't name all of them over there, but thanks, Doug and Maria, for bringing that wonderful crowd with you. Uh, somebody must be in school. <laughs> Michaela's here and the rest of it. Anyway, uh, it's always honored when your grandchildren come, but you have to be careful. Uh, you have to tell the truth because, uh, because they know who you really are, you know. That's why it's always nice to have friends, because your friends are friends even though they know who you are and what you are. The speech today is, is about uh, my last book, Ten Powerful Phrases for Positive People. So let me start with the first one. First word is, I'm wrong and I'm sorry. That's a simple phrase. The hardest phrase, and that's why I started with it in the book. It is so difficult to say that. After I wrote this book, a doctor came up to me and said, I have an associate that 10 years ago we had a very strong disagreement. We haven't spoken to each other since. And then he said, I got a Christmas card from him. And at the bottom he said, I'm wrong and I'm sorry. You know, he said, I called him up. We're going to have dinner together now. But it took somebody 10 years to say that simple phrase. You could say, you're right, I'm wrong. All people find that hard, I think especially politicians. <laughs> There's a feeling that you cannot admit you made a mistake. And I know a few presidents, and I, that was true of all of them. And uh, present one is no exception, by the way. But I'm wrong and I'm sorry. Doug is here, and I, I tell a story on Doug. One night Doug came in later than he should have, but he'd been traveling with me, and he'd heard me make, make the speech about this, and so it's, uh, I'm waiting for him. I'm, I'm chomping at the bit. I'm a little unhappy. Our oldest son, Dick, says, you should hear my dad. If you think he makes, if he's a good speaker, you should hear him at two o'clock in the morning when you come in late. <laughs> if that is when he makes his best speeches. But Doug came in a little late, but he'd heard all this. He walks to the door and says, hi, Dad. I'm wrong, and I'm sorry. <laughs> now, what do you do with that? 
You give them a hug and say, well, I'm glad you're home safe. <laughs> all those good words you had about uh, calling, you got a telephone, you know, you dumb kid and all that. It's all wasted. <laughs> but it's disarming when you get into disagreements with people, when you just step up and say, you're right, I'm wrong. You know, sometimes I would make decisions at Amway and the big ones that impacted the millions of people. And you know you do that and you think you, you got everybody's view in mind and you think you've thought about everybody and everything and, and then you announce it and the phone rings and said, hey, did you think about this? No, I'm sorry, I did not. Well, you didn't think about how it affected me. No, I really didn't. I'll think about that and we'll see if we can correct it. You're right and I'm wrong. Now that just ends it, it finishes it. It cleans up a lot of the messes you're living with just because you can't do that. Between husband and wife, between your children and you, I'm wrong and I'm sorry. You know, I was a poor student at Grand Rapids Christian High School. When I came out of Baldwin Christian School, I, they must have told them over there that I wasn't too bright. Uh, because it was obvious that I wasn't college material. I was an okay student. I got through. But then, in my yearbook, Dr. Leonard Greenway, very famous preacher, very good, taught Bible at Christian High. I never took a class from him. And he writes in there to a clean-cut young man with talents for leadership in God's kingdom. Wow, I'd never heard that word. But I left that school with that lift because of one phrase from one man that I could do something. Dr. Leonard Greenway's one line Never forgot it. Big boost to me. Forty years later at a class reunion, I have, now I'm doing pretty well, and I was class president, so I was speaking, and I said, Dr. Greenway, you wrote something in my yearbook 40 years ago I never forgot. And he stood up and says, I will tell you what I wrote in your yearbook 40 years ago. And he quoted the line back to us. Afterwards, I wondered, did he put that in every kid's yearbook? <laughs> I, I found out he did not. That's the point of this whole little talk today. And you think maybe you're not important. But a line of encouragement from you can change a person's life. If young kids come over to your house, like we oftentimes had. I enjoyed talking to them. And some of them say, well, you told me this, and I still remember that. And even then, I was trying to use words of encouragement. I don't know what they were getting at home. But oftentimes it's at home, you dummy, you're not doing well, I'm ashamed of you, or whatever. But a lot of you, a lot of you come, and a lot of kids come out of homes that are not sources of encouragement at all. Maybe they just don't know. I don't know, but you've got to change that. And it starts at your house. And all leadership, Dr. Greenway talked about leadership, and everybody acts like leadership is being the president of 
Calvin Seminary or something. But leadership is what you do at home. That's where leadership begins. Leadership begins with you and having prayer at your meals. It begins with you taking your kids to church, doesn't it? That's real leadership. And my goodness, I'm jotting down notes myself. And Rich is so right. Leadership begins in the home. And my goodness, the words we speak over our kids, ourselves. My goodness, the power they have. The bad words, terrible. And the good words, the encouraging ones, oh, they last a lifetime. More with Rich DeVos, his remarkable speech at Calvin College about his book, 10 Powerful Phrases for Positive People, here on Our American Stories. with Our American Stories and the late Amway co-founder, Rich DeVos. And my goodness, what words we're hearing. We return to his speech about his terrific book, 10 Powerful Phrases for Positive People. Another one I have is I'm proud of you. Well, I used to write notes. I, I have those little pads from written desk of Rich DeVos and so forth. And I usually didn't dictate letters. Dictate letters were, were, were better than an email. I don't mind an email, but you know, who puts them up on the wall if you got an email? <laughs> who saves an email? But a handwritten note is saved. And when distributors write, say, oh, my son just got, became an Eagle Scout, and I write him, how wonderful, and then send a little note, how great it is, and all little handwritten notes, and I wrote them by the thousands, and. Years later, one woman said, you know, I've had that on my refrigerator three years already. Wow. How often people don't get recognized for what they do. To get a son to become an Eagle Scout. What a huge achievement for a mother. Important, so important, she kept it on the wall for years. I started a process with Kim of watching the newspaper. I said, Kim, look for the newspaper and find everybody who's doing outstanding things in the city. We'll send them a book and send them a letter congratulating them. And so we have done thousands to people all over Grand Rapids and state of Michigan primarily. And I send a book, whatever the current book is, and send it out and tell them how proud I am of what they're doing. And people meet me on the street and tell me, I got one of your letters. I got your book. They don't know me, I don't know them. And we still do it. We still send them out on a regular basis just to tell people how much we appreciate what they're doing. But you know, it's a little note to a school teacher to thank you for bringing the boots home and finding the mittens and doing all the other things they have to do besides try to teach your child. A little note. We're not very good at it. My son, Dan, said to me the other day, he said, you know, Dad, I just picked up your book again. And I realized I do not do a good job writing little thank you notes. So I thought I'd send you one. <laughs> so he sent me a nice little thank you note. 
for the book and other things. How nice. How good are you at it? Practice. I had solicited some money for a contribution at Grand Valley. It's Les Tassel. He was on their list and we were meeting downtown and walking the parking lot and he was dressed 90 years old and he looked fabulous. I used to think that was old, by the way. <laughs> at, at almost 84, I don't feel that way anymore, but he, he looked great. And I said, man, you look like a million dollars. And we upstairs and had lunch. I said, you know what I look like it? I'd like to have you give a million. <laughs> and he said, okay. He had a son-in-law with him who, who was a lawyer. And I said, you know, for a little more money, we'll name the whole building after you. And the son-in-law says, don't forget your grandchildren, Grandpa. <laughs> Which is what he was supposed to do, I think. But anyway, he gave it. I got home, and, uh, get, and Wren, I was telling Wren this story. Elsa Prince's husband, Wren, and Wren said, did you witness to him? I said, no. But I said, I will. I'll call him tonight. And I called him up. And I said, Les, thank you for your gift, but I, I want to ask you another question. How, what's your relationship with God, and are you at peace with him? He said, no, I don't have a relationship with God. And I chatted with him a little while and said, Les, you ought to get this settled, you know. You're getting a little old, and it's time to get it settled. And I recommend you get down on your knees tonight and ask God to come into your life and ask Christ to come into your life. Simple little presentation, huh? And then I talked to this family, and they said, you know, they called me up the next day. They said, hey, my dad accepted Christ last night. I said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. You know, I said, you guys have been working? Oh, she said, we've been praying so hard for that. I said, it's not amazing. And she said, then you come along and just confront him with it, and he suddenly accepts Christ. I said, I didn't come along. God came along and grabbed him that day, and he let me have a little bit of credit in there. And so we became good friends, and shortly thereafter, a month or two, he died. And I... I said to Helen, we were in Florida. I said, I'm going to fly up and go to the funeral. She didn't go. I saw So I just got in the airplane, flew up, walked in the church. Undertaker saw me and said, I think you ought to go talk to the family. So I went over and talked to the family. And she saw me, his daughter, who'd been praying so hard for him. She gasped. You did come. Obviously, they'd wondered whether I cared enough to come. And I did. And God just said to me, you ought to go. Now, you know, Wren, thank God for Wren reminding me that I had missed simple little life. So then when I speak at the funeral, I said, well, I'm happy to say a few words and tell them how this came to be, that we can all be joyful today, you know, at peace. I guess that's what I'm talking about. 
little things you do that establish a relationship that allows a door to open. I mean, you and I have got to lead the parade. We are delinquent. We haven't made it a priority. And we should. Every time I make a speech, no matter where, I try to figure out how I'm going to get it in. Then I'm going to work it in every speech to present the gospel. The good news. The bad news. If you're a sinner, the good news. You can be saved. You know, it's pretty simple. Anyway, that's just some more phrases. Thank you to God. I need you, seven. I'll, I'll move along. We'll get this over with. It's, I'm dragging this out a little bit. <laughs> I need you. I trust you. I respect you. That's a good phrase to use. It's a powerful phrase. Somebody said, how do you get respect? Oh, it's simple to get respect. You show respect. That's all. But if you don't show respect to other people, they're not going to respect you. I had a captain on one of our boats once. He said, I demand respect from my crew. I went down and talked to the crew. They hated him. <laughs> I got rid of him. He didn't know that you gained respect by showing respect. So practice the line, because when you say, I respect you, you send a powerful message. I was on a Donahue show once, and Donahue was breaking Amway over the coals, and me with it, and had some distributors there telling me how rotten it was, and that's okay, I've had the FTC do that, so he didn't have to do that. And I got a postcard, an open postcard, you know those old kind of cards you used to buy for a penny? And on the back side it says, divorce 10, Donahue nothing, love, Barbara Bush. Now, is that a quick way to send a message of respect and belief and all the other things? Can you do that? Every time you hear something good, they say, I respect you. I'll show you respect. You show respect just by writing the message. Things you and I can do so easily every day. And my last one is I love you. Your love for God because he first loved you. And so that love gives you the right and the permission and the power to tell others that you love them, doesn't it? In our family, whenever we hang up, we say, love you. When I sign a book or sign a letter, I sign, love you, even if it's to a president of the United States. I sign it with my phrase, love you. Helen and I use the phrase all the time. Boy, he's testing to make sure she still does after all the stupid things I do. <laughs> because I'm a sinner. And so we have to accept the fact that we're sinners and we do things wrong and we got to love each other anyway. Thank you for having me.
And what a talk. And thanks to Alex for running this down. And again, send any talk like this with so much wisdom to ouramericannetwork.org. And my goodness, hope you are jotting some things down. I sure as heck did. I am wrong, and I am sorry. And he's right. Those are disarming words, and they do clean up a lot of things. As Rich DeVos said, I need you, I trust you, I respect you, and the big phrase of them all, I love you. Beautiful storytelling, a terrific speech. Rich DeVos, the 10 powerful phrases for positive people. It's his story in a way here on Our American Stories. stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show and we love to tell stories about our own history and always our this day in histories and our historical segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Relatively few women went with the initial stampedes to new mineral discoveries throughout the American frontiers and of those even less went on their own. Here's Roger McGrath to tell us the story of a mining woman who sought her fortunes in a man's world and became one of the greatest women of the Old West. Dr. McGrath is a professor in Southern California and the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. Here's Roger. Known as the Frontier Angel or the Saint of the Sourdoughs, Nellie Cashman was one of the courageous women who helped make America's conquest of the frontier our Homeric era. She ranged far and wide on every mining frontier, from Arizona and Mexico in the south to Alaska and the Klondike in the far north. She is not forgotten. She is an inductee of the Alaska Mining Hall of Fame, the Arizona Women's Hall of Fame, and Arizona Women's Heritage Trail. There's also a Nellie Cashman Day in Tombstone. She was a character in the 1950s TV series, The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, and the U.S. Postal Service honored her with a stamp in 1994. Born in County Cork, Ireland in 1845, Nellie is only a teenager when she, her sister Frances, and her widowed mother leave Ireland and sail to Boston in 1860. When the Civil War erupts, a shortage of young men allows Nellie to find work as a bellhop in a hotel. Not many bellhops look like Nellie, a beautiful and finely featured young woman with waist-length brunette hair, flawless fair skin, and sparkling expressive eyes. Here's Jane Baker, author of the Nellie Cashman biography, Tough Nut Angel, the tale of a real-life adventuress of the Old West. There's a legend that says that Nellie met General Ulysses F. Grant 
and had a conversation with him that ended in him suggesting that she go to the West because she would fit better there. With the end of the Civil War, the Cashmans decide it's California for them. They arrive in San Francisco after sailing on steamships and crossing through the jungles and mountains of Panama on burrows. Frances, or Fanny as she's called, marries Irishman Tom Cunningham and starts a family. Nellie is off for mining strikes in Arizona, Nevada, and Idaho. In each new mining camp, she establishes a boarding house and a restaurant, builds it into a profitable enterprise, then sells out and moves on. Any miner down on his luck eats for free at Nellie's, and Nellie is always ready to grub stake a prospector. She also has a talent for the healing arts and nurses many an injured or ill miner back to health. Here's the story of the Old West, Marshall Trimble, otherwise known as the Will Rogers of Arizona. Nellie took great pride in the fact that she never turned away a hungry miner who had no money to pay for his meal or board. And when there was a need to raise money, whether it was for churches and schools or hospitals or a family of a miner killed in a mining accident, well, Nellie would head downtown for the saloons or the brothels with her hat turned upside down and she always left with a hat full of money. The source of those donations never bothered her. She said one time, whether the money comes from an upstanding citizen or a member of an outlaw faction makes no difference to me and the money doesn't know the difference either. In 1874, Nellie joins a party of 200 Nevada miners headed for the Cassiar Mountains in northern British Columbia, near the border of the Yukon. The region is practically unknown and all but inaccessible, but the miners, including Nellie, the only female, reach their destination and strike gold on the upper reaches of the Stikeen River and along its major tributary, Dease Creek. It's only fall when winter comes to the Cassiars. The miners are caught unprepared for the heavy snowfalls and severe cold. As their supplies dwindle, dozens begin falling ill with scurvy. Their beloved Nellie is not among them. She left earlier for a vacation in Victoria on Vancouver Island. When word reaches Victoria, the miners are entrapped by snow and ice and suffering terribly. Nellie purchases 2,000 pounds of supplies, including plenty of lime juice, hires six men, and heads for Deese Creek. At Wrangell, Alaska, U.S. Customs officers try to dissuade her from what they term a mad trip. But Nellie pushes on. When the commander of Fort Wrangell hears that a woman is headed into the Cassiars, he dispatches a lieutenant with a squad of soldiers to rescue her. They don't catch up with Nellie until high up on the Stikine River. Nearly exhausted and suffering greatly from the cold, the soldiers find Nellie camped comfortably on the ice of this frozen Stikine. The lieutenant says she is cooking her evening meal by the heat of a wood fire and humming a lively air. The soldiers greatly accept her offer of hot coffee and food and return without her. The winter weather is so severe that people in coastal settlements think Nellie must have died. Here again is Jane Baker. There was a small avalanche and Nellie's tent was buried 10 feet deep in the snow. 
Now, when I heard about this, I wondered how did she figure out how to get out of there? Well, if you spit, your spit will go down. So what she did was spit and climb the opposite directions, and she, and she climbed out of the hole. She dug herself up out of it. After 77 days on the trail and digging herself out of a snow slide, Nellie reaches Dease Creek. Upon hearing of Nellie's trek, a newspaper called it an extraordinary feat by an indomitable female who possesses all the vivacity as well as the push and energy inherent to her race. With lime juice and good food, Nellie nurses every one of the 200 snowed-in miners back to good health. She is called the Angel of the Cassiars. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Nellie Cashman here on Our American Stories. stories and we continue now with the story of Nellie Cashman. Nellie stays in British Columbia for another three years operating her businesses and raising money to build St. Joseph's Hospital in Victoria. In 1878 Nellie returns to San Francisco to visit her mother in the Cunninghams. Fanny and her husband now have three boys and two girls who love their Aunt Nell and are fascinated by her many adventures. A new mining strike soon sends Nellie to Tucson in Arizona Territory. She opens the Delmonico Restaurant, the first business in Tucson owned by a woman. But in 1880, she heads for the new silver strike at Tombstone. She takes over operation of the Russ House Hotel and within weeks becomes part owner. One of the prospectors she feeds for free in grub stakes is Edward Doheny who later becomes one of America's great oil men. Not long after Nellie begins operating the Russ uh, House Hotel, her sister's husband dies of tuberculosis. Nellie rushes to San Francisco and brings Fanny and her children to Tombstone to live in a home immediately behind the Russ House. In 1883, Fanny dies of tuberculosis, and Aunt Nell finishes the job of rearing the Cunningham children. When Nellie arrives in Tombstone, there is no Catholic church. Here again is Marshall Trimble. In 1880, there was an article in the Tombstone Epitaph that said, Nellie Cashman, the irrepressible, started out yesterday to raise funds for the building of a Catholic church. We don't know what success attended her first effort, but bet there is going to be a Catholic church in Tombstone before many more days if Nellie has to build it herself. She convinces the owners of the Crystal Palace Saloon, one of the owners is Wyatt Earp, to allow Sunday services to be held there until a church is built. Nellie leads the way in fundraising for what becomes the Sacred Heart Church. Nellie also helps build the first school in Tombstone and the first non-military hospital in Arizona, St. Mary's in Tucson. 
She also establishes a fund for prospectors injured in mining accidents and serves as treasurer of Tombstone's chapter of the Land League of Ireland. Nellie becomes one of the most influential and respected figures in Tombstone. Here again is Jane Baker. During the time she was raising those kids in Tombstone, the gunfight at the OK Corral happened, and Nellie knew all of those players, Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp, all his brothers. She knew the mayor of Tombstone named John Clum, who thought she was absolutely wonderful and wrote uh, glowing reports of her. John Clum, the publisher of the Tombstone Epitaph and Tombstone's first mayor, said of Nellie, her frank manner, her self-reliant spirit, and her emphatic and fascinating Celtic brogue impressed me very much and indicated that she was a woman of strong character and marked individuality. Here's Marshall Trimble with another story exemplifying Nellie's servant's heart. During the Christmas season of 1883 in Bisbee, five men pulled a robbery, killing four people, including a pregnant woman. They were caught, tried, and convicted, and sentenced to hang. Nellie took it upon herself to be their mother confessor. And just before the hanging, an entrepreneur had built a grandstand outside the high walls of the Tombstone Courthouse and was selling tickets to watch the hanging. The outlaws pleaded with Nellie not to let their hanging become a public spectacle. So, the night before the event, Nellie and some friends arrived, late, late in the evening, with tools in hand, and they tore it down. After the five men were hanged, the authorities had planned to donate their bodies to medical science. But the condemned men protested to Nellie, so she saw to it that they were given a proper burial and hired a guard to protect their graves for several days. One day a dying Mexican stumbles into Tombstone and collapses at the entrance to the Russ house. Nellie has him carried inside and put on a bed. Before he dies, he mutters to her, Mule, go to Mule. Gold nuggets are found in his pockets. Nellie and some 20 tombstone miners are soon exploring the desert inland from Mule in Baja, California. The party runs out of water, and several of the men are on the verge of death from dehydration. The Phoenix Herald newspaper reports that Nellie and two others have died of thirst. Actually, Nellie is in better shape than any of the men. She volunteers to go off on her own, assuring her fellow prospectors a good angel will guide her to water. She crosses miles of scorching desert and miraculously comes upon an isolated mission. Not pausing to rest, she organizes a rescue party and helps drive burrows loaded with goatskin sacks of water back to the miners. She arrives just in the nick of time. In 1895, at the age of 50, Nellie is still going strong when she arrives in Tucson. A newspaper reports, Yesterday, Tucson was visited by one of the most extraordinary women in America, Nellie Cashman whose name and face have been familiar to every important mining camp or district on the coast for more than 20 years. She rode into the town from Casa Grande on horseback, a jaunt that would nearly have prostrated the average man with fatigue. 
She showed no sign of weariness and went about town in that calm, business-like manner that belongs particularly to her. When news of the great strike in the Klondike reaches the States, Nellie is off for the far north immediately. She arrives in Dai, Alaska during March 1898 and becomes one of the first women to take the steep Chilkoot Pass Trail. At the summit on the Canadian border, the Mounties required each stampeder to pack 2,000 pounds of supplies or they wouldn't let them in. <laughs> I guess they didn't want American citizens to perish on Canadian soil. Well, 54-year-old Nellie had to make several trips up the snowpack trail, but she was able to pass inspection. And then while waiting for the ice to thaw, she built a raft and then floated 500 miles down the Yukon River to reach Dawson, braving a series of fierce rapids along the way. Nellie soon opens a restaurant and a grocery store, which includes a small library that becomes known as the Prospector's Haven of Rest. A newspaper reports, her entrance into a saloon or dance hall is the signal for every man in the place to stand. Nellie has always done well, but she really strikes it rich in the Klondike. Her claim on Bonanza Creek pays her more than $100,000, equivalent to $3 million in today's money. Nellie continues living and prospecting in the Yukon and Alaska for another 25 years. She becomes an expert musher, more than once driving teams of dogs through the snow for hundreds of miles. Here's Marshall. In 1923, at the age of 78, she mushed a dog sled team 350 miles in just 17 days. Newspapers all over Alaska carried the story of that intrepid lady named Nellie Cashman. During the fall of 1924, her fabled health finally begins to fail. She dies at age 79 in January 1925 in St. Joseph's Hospital, which she had helped build nearly 50 years earlier. Nellie was single all her life. She had several proposals. She was a very pretty woman, but she never married. And when asked if she ever feared for her safety, being the only woman among so many rough-hewn men, she replied sweetly, if you act like a lady, men will always treat you like one. Shortly before she dies, a reporter asks her if she ever feared for her virtue while living in all-male mining camps or prospecting on wild frontiers. She replies, bless your soul, no. I never have had a word said to me out of the way. The boys would sure see to it that anyone who ever offered to insult me could never be able to repeat the offense. And thanks to Roger McGrath for that storytelling, and he's told so many good ones here on this show. Also thanks to Greg Hengler. And Roger is a professor in Southern California, and he's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. That's Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Nellie Cashman's story, and it's a remarkable one, here on Our American Stories.
Giving tree half fallen, no shade to crawling underneath. I've got scars from a pocket knife where you carved your heart into me. If all you wanted was love, why would you? And you're listening to The Giving Tree by Plain White Tees, a song based on the famous picture book that was written by a man we're about to meet. Here's Greg Hengler. Poet W.H. Auden once said, There are good books which are only for adults. There are no good books which are only for children. Children's picture books matter because they're a form of our first impression of literature and become the gateway towards our appetites for the written word and our knowledge of the world. This most distilled form of art expresses basic truths about life in such a poetic way that it assumes the form of intellectual mother's milk. The stylistic eccentricities of Marie Sendak, Dr. Seuss, and Shel Silverstein form the bedrock of our childhood lexicon. Shel's story is arguably the most eccentrically interesting among the big three. Actor-filmmaker James Franco is set to direct and star in the biopic centered on Shel Silverstein. And you're about to find out why. Born in 1930 on the northwest side of Chicago, Sheldon Allen Silverstein grew up in a second-story apartment crammed with relatives. His Jewish parents, an immigrant father from Eastern Europe, and a Chicago-born mother opened an unsuccessful bakery on the heels of the Great Depression. Though Silverstein's mother encouraged his early knack for drawing, his father made it clear that he was expected to join the floundering family business. Silverstein discovered his passion for drawing when he was five. The lonely, eccentric kid spent his K-12 years drawing, reading, and listening to the radio. Sir, is it true that you are 2,000 years old? Oh, boy. (laughs) They were his comfort and refuge from the perpetual boredom of school and his increasingly wrathful father. After a few unsuccessful attempts at college, he explained, I didn't get much attention from the girls, and I didn't learn much. Those are the two worst things that can happen to a guy. But this delay in gratification would later reveal itself as a blessing in disguise. By the time I could get the girls, I already knew how to write poems and draw pictures. Thank God I was able to develop these things which I could keep before I got the goodies that were my first choice. While serving in Japan and Korea, he found an unexpected outlet as an army cartoonist. When he was discharged and unemployed, Silverstein began submitting cartoons to magazines while hawking peanuts and hot dogs to fans at Comiskey Park in Chicago. 
His break came in 1956 when he visited the offices of a startup magazine for men and met its editor, himself an avid cartoonist and army veteran, Hugh Hefner. During those Playboy years, Silverstein shuttled back and forth between Chicago and downtown New York. He frequented folk clubs and began making his own music, scribbling away songs on the back of cocktail napkins and tablecloths, performing folk and jazz numbers in a low, gravelly voice. Silverstein was a prolific perfectionist. In 1964 alone, he published three children's books and one book for adults. Among them was The Giving Tree, whose breakaway success caught his publisher, who had printed a measly run of 7,000 copies, by surprise. Sales of The Giving Tree doubled every year in the decade following its publication. They have since approached 10 million copies in sales worldwide. Here's Shell reading The Giving Tree. Once there was a tree, and she loved the little boy. And every day the boy would come. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples. And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the tree was happy. But then time passes and the boy forgets about her. But time went by. One day, the boy, now a young man, returns, asking for money. Not having any to offer him, the tree is happy to give him her apples to sell. She is likewise happy to give him her branches and later her trunk until there's nothing left of her but an old stump, which the old man, or the boy, proceeds to sit on. Come, boy. Come sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. This book has been described as one of the most divisive books in children's literature. The controversy concerns whether the relationship between the main characters, a boy and a tree, should be interpreted as positive, i.e. the tree gives the boy selfless love, or a negative, i.e. the boy and the tree have an abusive relationship. Lisa Rogak, in her biography on Silverstein, A Boy Named Shell, offered her take on The Giving Tree. Given Shell's disgust with the me-first attitude among the folk singers and other artists who were creating art as a form of self-analysis, he wrote it as a reaction to their own mushiness. Silverstein was continually asked to defend his children's picture book. It's just a relationship between two people. One gives and the other takes, he would often repeat. Every year, The Giving Tree appears on the list of top 10 children's books of all time. Silverstein said that he had never studied the poetry of others and had therefore developed his own quirky style. Shell was no coward, nor was his goal to please the most amount of people. Therefore, he was no fan of political correctness. Uh, there was a time that you take uh, 
Little Red Riding Hood, for example, the three little pigs, you know. There was a time when, I know when I read Little Red Riding Hood, she goes, you know, to the, to, you know, she gets the directions from the wolf and she goes to the grandmother's house and, and uh, the wolf's already been there and he's already eaten up the grandmother, you know. And uh, now an earlier edition than this had the wolf, he eats up the grandmother, the earliest edition, and then he eats up Little Red Riding Hood too. It was a moral story, you know. I don't know what the moral was, really, but it meant something. And uh, he eats the grandmother, and then he eats Red Riding Hood. Well, by the time I was reading the story, he eats the grandmother, but he doesn't quite manage to get Red Riding Hood down completely because the woodsman comes in and kills him. Then, as I was older, I read the book again, and what they turned it into this time was that he eats the grandmother... He doesn't get to Red Riding Hood, but the woodsman comes in and chops open the, the wolf's belly and the grandmother pops out. Brand new. Well, now I think it is. He comes in. He doesn't even eat the grandmother altogether. He just scares her and she runs away. And then the hunter comes in. Well, you know, eventually, uh, you know, the hunter and the wolf and the grandmother are all going to sit around and play gin rummy. Shell wrote hundreds of poems and verses for children in best-selling collections like the fiercely imagined works... Where the Sidewalk Ends, and A Light in the Attic. Translated into more than 30 languages, Shell's books have sold over 30 million copies. And when we come back, more on the life of Shell Silverstein. Return to the life of Shel Silverstein. Let's pick up where we last left off. The Beatles were on the cover. The Beatles! Silverstein produced over 1,000 published songs, many of which have been used in TV shows and movies, including classics like Dr. Hook's The Cover of the Rolling Stone, which was featured in Almost Famous. Cameron Crowe's tender, semi-autobiographical film about going on tour with rock stars in the 1970s and writing about it for Rolling Stone magazine. Shell also wrote The Ballad of Lucy Jordan, which was featured in Thelma and Louise, and he was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe for his song, I'm Checking Out, sung by Meryl Streep in the film Postcards from the Edge. I ain't gonna live on lonely street no more, no more. The fearsome-looking, bald, bearded Jew wearing a long-flowing pirate shirt and leather jacket that Goodwill would have rejected was also adored by the country music community. Here in Topeka, the rain is a falling, the faucet is a dripping, and the kids are a balling. One of them is toddling, and one is a crawling, and one's on the way. He wrote One's on the Way and Hey Loretta, both hits for Loretta Lynn in 1971 and 1973. Well, they're building a gallows outside my cell And I've got 25 minutes to go And 25 Minutes to Go, sung by Johnny Cash About a man on death row 
with each line counting down one minute closer to his execution. Well, I'm waiting for the pardon that'll set me free with nine more minutes to go. But this ain't the movie, so forget about me. Eight more minutes to go. On February 23rd, 1969, the night before Johnny Cash was set to record his live album at San Quentin Prison, he held a party at his home. The evening ended as it usually did, with his friends trying out their latest songs. Bob Dylan sang Lay Lady Lay, Chris Christopherson sang Me and My Bobby McGee, and Shel Silverstein offered up A Boy Named Sue. Here's Johnny Cash's son, John Carter Cash. Shell brought my dad a poem named Boy Named Sue. And dad read it and he was and he laughed and he liked it. He put it in his pocket. And this was right before he went to San Quentin to record the, the live album there. He got on stage uh, for the live performance and he and basically remembered that poem in his pocket. He reached in and took it out and looked at it, turned around to the band and said, play something in A. And the band just began to play. And uh, just a little, you know, 12-bar um, walking blues rhythm. And then Dad recited the lyric, first time he'd ever recited it live, ever. And it was recorded, and that was the big number one hit. Well, my daddy left home Here's Johnny Cash singing A Boy Named Sue for the first time at San Quentin Prison. Well, my daddy left home when I was three, and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke, and it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and I'd get red, and some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head. I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue. Well, I grew up quick and I grew up mean. My fist got hard, my wits got keen. Roamed from town to town to hide my shame. But I made me a vow to the moon and stars. I'd search the honky tonks and bars and kill that man that gave me that awful name. Well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July, and I'd just hit town and my throat was dry. I thought I'd stop and have myself a brew. At an old saloon on a street of mud, there at a table dealing stud, sat the dirty mangy dog that named me Sue. Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had had, and I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was big and bent and gray and old, and I looked at him and my blood ran cold, and I said, My name is Sue. How do you do? How are you gonna die? Well, I hit him hard right between the eyes And he went down, but to my surprise Come up with a knife and cut off a piece of my ear But I busted a chair right across his teeth And we crashed through the wall and into the street Kicking and a-gouging in the mud and the blood and the beard I tell you, I fought tougher men But I really can't remember when He kicked like a mule and he bit like a crocodile 
I heard him laugh and then I heard him cuss and he went for his gun and I pulled mine first. He stood there looking at me and I saw him smile and he said, son, this world is rough and if a man's gonna make it, he's gotta be tough. And I know I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I give you that name and I said goodbye and knew you'd have to get tough or die. And it's that name that helped to make you strong. Yeah. Said, now you just fought one hell of a fight And I know you hate me and you got the right To kill me now and I wouldn't blame you if you do But you ought to thank me before I die For the gravel in your guts and the spit in the eye Cause I'm the that named you Sue Yeah, what could I do? What could I do? I got all choked up and I threw down my gun Called him a paw and he called me a son And I come away with a different point of view And I think about him now and then Every time I try and every time I win And if I ever have a son I think I'm gonna name him Bill or George, anything but Sue I still ain't that When this song came out a few months later, it hit number one on the Billboard Country charts for five weeks and spent three weeks at number two on the pop charts, just behind the Rolling Stones' Honky Tonk Women. Shell wrote A Boy Named Sue after hearing his close friend Gene Shepard, known for the film A Christmas Story, which he narrated and co-scripted, complain about being teased for his girl's name as a kid. Oh, fudge. Only I didn't say fudge. A boy named Sue managed to become one of the most referenced country songs of all time. On April Fool's Day, 1970, Johnny Cash sang a truncated version of A Boy Named Sue with Shell on The Johnny Cash Show. A lot of your writings have meant a great deal to me and... Uh, uh, for one song in particular that she wrote has been largely responsible for a lot of the success I've had lately. Oh. She wrote A Boy Named Sue. Among well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July and I'd just hit town and my throat was dry. I thought I'd stop and have myself a brew. At an old saloon on a street of mud. There at a table, dealing studs, well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had had. I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was kind of bent, gray and old. I looked at him, but blood run cold. I said, my name is Sue. How do you do? Now you're going to die. <laughs> Shell's voice has been compared to everything from a creaking door or a rusty gate to the yelp made by a dog whose tail had been stepped on. <laughs> he agreed with the critique, although he liked the sound of his voice. Silverstein also co-wrote The Taker with Chris Christopherson, which was recorded by Waylon Jennings. He's a helper, Neil Helper. Open the doors that she can't on her own. Shell also advised Bob Dylan on album lyrics for what turned out to be Blood on the Tracks, 
released in 1975. Silverstein also wrote plays. He even co-wrote the screenplay Things Change with legendary playwright David Mamet. On May 10th, 1999, Shel Silverstein died at age 68 of a heart attack in Key West, Florida. He is buried in West Lawn Cemetery in Norridge, Illinois. From best-selling children's book author to Grammy-winning, Oscar-nominated songwriter, Shel Silverstein's unique imagination and bold brand of humor are beloved by countless adults and children all over the world. And great job as always, Greg. And what a story about a great Chicago voice and that Shel Silverstein and David Mamet worked together. Thank goodness they did. Shel Silverstein's story, in a way an American story about storytelling, here on Our American Stories. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to all that we do. David Mamet's story, another great Chicago writer, is there as well. Take a listen if you can. Share the link with friends.